We both saw a need to get companies that were buying coffee closer to the issues that were existing at Origin. My experience working in East Africa for 10 years, I spent a lot of time with farmers and I had heard quite consistently what some of their needs were. And those included getting higher prices, being able to improve quality and connect more directly to markets, being able to improve their productivity and get a higher yield, and being able to manage their costs. Welcome back to Drip, a DC coffee podcast. I'm your host, Austin Brower. In this second episode of Drip, an NYC special edition series, we hear from Enveritas's Carl Servone. In his past lives, he has led work in over a dozen coffee countries for TechnoServe, He's founded a microfinance company in Tanzania, and now Carl's the co-founder and COO of Enveritas. Enveritas verifies sustainability practices in the coffee supply chain. Carl introduces a few concepts I had not heard about or thought about until our conversation. You won't want to miss this, so sit back, grab your cup of coffee, and enjoy the episode. So Carl Servone from Inveritas, real excited to have you here. I think kind of talking before we were already mentioning it, but it's really fun to start to bridge out of just cafes and roasteries and start thinking about the ancillary parts of the coffee community and kind of how everybody links in and how throughout the whole supply chain, there's people doing really great and interesting work trying to make it a better community. So welcome to Drip a DC Coffee Podcast, New York edition. Thank you, Austin. Glad to be here. Just kind of starting out, we'd love to hear kind of what your position is in Enveritas, and then we can kind of get more into your coffee journey a little bit and then really kind of dive into Enveritas. Does that sound good? That sounds right. Great. So with Enveritas, what's your position? So I'm one of the founders, and then I act as the chief operating officer. Nice. Okay. What kind of led you into coffee? I started the coffee industry a little over a decade ago. After college, I'd spent a bit of time in Tanzania, and so I got an opportunity to go out and do some work in agriculture in Tanzania. And after about a year of that, I discovered microfinance, and I got interested in trying to set up my own microfinance organization. So I spent about two years getting that going, building up a team and hiring people and developing different loan products in a rural community in Tanzania. After about two years of that, I met someone who was working at an organization called TechnoServe in in coffee and offered me first a role volunteering, one thing led to another, and I found myself living in East Africa for the next seven years after that. So I first learned about coffee in Tanzania. I got a chance with TechnoServe to go to Kenya and Rwanda, and then eventually I was given the opportunity to work on a large Gates Foundation-funded project in Ethiopia. So I got to open our office there in Ethiopia, build up another team, and run a really exciting project that was helping farmers improve quality and sell to specialty buyers for the first time. Oh, wow. And what's the Gates Foundation funded project was funding <coughs> that went to TechnoServe for this That's program? Right. Yeah. And so your microfinance project, was that supporting all agriculture, people in the agricultural space, or just coffee? It was in a coffee-growing area, okay. but coffee wasn't the main crop that people grew there would be some coffee, but we didn't focus on that specially. And then the types of loans that you gave, what was it like? I mean, I'm sure the infrastructure for finance wasn't as built up as it would be in the United States. What did it look like? At that time, microfinance was just becoming well-known. There was a lot of interest in other parts of Tanzania, but the place that I was in didn't have any existing programs or infrastructure. And so there had been a community that I'd been working in before. I got to know some people in there, 
we started creating something a bit more formal. We set up an office, and then next thing you know, we had women particularly that were coming and, and borrowing money, and we developed a range of different loan products and were able to grow it. We kept taking the money that would come in and, and putting that back in, so we had pretty good organic growth and got it to a, a level where it was able to sustain the financial needs of a couple different communities. It got to a certain scale, and I said, all right, I'm ready to move on now. Oh, wow. And so is the organization still running? Yeah, it's still there. And what's that organization called? It's called Meso. Meso. Yeah. That's really neat. So, I mean, from the beginning, really, it sounds like you were interested in providing impact to different communities, whether it was with Meso or TechnoServe or now in Veritas. Yes. I'd say that there's probably been a couple of themes throughout my life. Number one, I've always been interested in the world and exploring. I was fortunate to travel as a kid. And then when I had a chance to study abroad in college, I wanted to go to Africa. So that was what kind of gave me the travel bug. Then I've also been interested in numbers and math and statistics. And so I've always explored things through that angle. And then finally, I've always enjoyed trying to bring people together and build things. So rally people around an idea or a cause and then create some kind of an organization around that. I guess you can see that in <laughs> what I've done consistently. Yeah. I think a lot of, at least my listeners in D.C. will know what TechnoServe is, but do you mind just giving a brief overview of TechnoServe? Because I think it kind of plugs in nicely to kind of what Inveritas became. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but... Yeah. TechnoServe is a, it's an international nonprofit organization. It works in mostly rural communities to help farmers take advantage of technologies or business practices that can essentially create economic prosperity. Coffee is one of the sectors that they work in. They're active across Latin America, Africa, and India as well. Other sectors include cocoa, cotton, dairy, horticulture. And so I was very fortunate that I entered TechnoServe at a time when the coffee work was still pretty small, but it had a lot of potential. And so I kind of rode this really exciting wave of it expanding from a few small programs in Nicaragua and Tanzania to being something quite large in East Africa. And then I also got a chance after working in East Africa to come back to New York and support TechnoServe's global coffee programs. Mm. That gave me exposure to South America, Central America. We did a bit of work in Southeast Asia as well. So I really got to take what I learned in East Africa and apply that in many other coffee industries. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. And then, so before we jump into your transition from like TechnoServe and Veritas, what is your earliest coffee memory? Um, one of the reasons I ask is it seems like a lot of people connect drinking coffee to a person in their family or to somebody in particular, and it's fun to kind of be consistent throughout the podcast. So. <laughs> yeah, so I would say that my, probably not my first coffee memory, but the one that is the most distinctive would yeah. be I was in seventh grade. I was at a school that was a bit far from my house, and so it was close to where my dad worked, and so he would drop me off on his way to the office, and so we'd leave at 6 in the morning, and we'd always stop at Dunkin' Donuts, which tells you where I'm from. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Rhode Island in, in the Northeast, and we'd stop at Dunkin' Donuts, and I'd get like a hazelnut or a French vanilla coffee every morning, and I remember feeling that that was a, an adult thing to do, mm -hmm. so I enjoyed those mornings, and I started drinking coffee every day probably since then. That's nice. I'm probably not drinking hazelnut a lot of <laughs> no. days every day anymore, huh? <laughs> not saying that's a bad thing, of <laughs> No, I've moved on to more complicated beverages. <laughs> keep, keep adulting, right? Exactly. Um, well, very neat. And so, in Veritas, tell us about it. What made you want to start it? You're a co-founder, right? Mm -hmm. And so, maybe it was a group effort, but would love to hear a little more about why in Veritas started and what it is. Myself and the other co-founder, David, we both worked at TechnoServe together for a decade. He and I worked closely on the Gates Foundation project on a number of projects that came after that, so we knew each other quite well. We both saw 
a need to get companies that were buying coffee closer to the issues that were existing at origin. My experience working in East Africa for 10 years, I spent a lot of time with farmers and I had heard quite consistently what some of their needs were. And those included getting higher prices, being able to improve quality and connect more directly to markets, being able to improve their productivity and get a higher yield, and being able to manage their costs. Those are the types of things that you'd hear pretty consistently. And then at the same time, you had this movement among companies of of all sizes to really start understanding more where their coffee came from. And this is driven partly by consumer pressure to understand things like traceability, Mm -hmm. what types of practices are happening in the places where a product comes from. In other cases, it has to do with regulations. So there's regulations in a couple of states and in Europe as well, which are preventing practices like child slavery and forced labor and supply chains. And at the same time, with the world being so connected these days, it becomes much harder to escape the fact that there may be real risks or challenges in your supply chains. So we saw these issues that existed in communities. And on the other hand, you saw companies trying to make commitments or take some of their funding or profits and put that towards sustainability initiatives. What we observed was that there was a bit of a disconnect and that some of the things that were attracting a lot of the money and where companies seemed to be focused were not always aligned with what farmers wanted and what their interests were. And when you're talking about companies, specifically coffee companies, is that right? Yeah, coffee companies. I mean, you could say the same thing is true for a number of other sectors. Mm -hmm. You can look at textiles and the Bangladesh factory collapse that happened seven or eight years ago. You can look at Apple sourcing minerals from the Congo that goes into smartphones. So there's just been a lot more attention paid to companies and the ethics of where they're sourcing and how they're sourcing their products. But coffee, because it's something which is very visible, Mm. it's a pure ingredient as opposed to a small component of a larger set of ingredients that's often on the vanguard. People expect coffee companies to know where this one product that they built their brand around is coming from. Mm -hmm. And so we saw that, and we saw that the systems that existed to satisfy that need hadn't really evolved much since they'd been created. And so there was a need to try and re-engineer the way that assurance could be provided to companies about what was going into their blends. And at the same time, we saw an opportunity to create a much more honest and transparent system that would allow farmers' voices to really be heard and the issues that they face to come to the forefront. There's some big disconnects. Yeah, certainly. One of the things that we observed is that there were a relatively small share of the overall farmer population that was able to participate in sustainability schemes. Mm -hmm. So it could be certification, it could be things like direct trade. If you were to simplify the kind of coffee ecosystem or the producer ecosystem, on the one hand, you have a small number of large, more professionally run farms or estates. So those are the bigger producers. You then have a group of farmers that may be organized into cooperatives. They could be some kind of a a business group of farmers. There could be an exporter that has invested and helped them create some structure. And then finally, you have the largest segment of the population, which are farmers that are unorganized. So they grow coffee, they might grow other products as well, Mm. and they will sell opportunistically. So who's offering the best price that day? Who comes to their farm? It could be that there are informal relationships that they have. And so it's a segment which um, in many countries is the majority of how coffee is transacted. We saw that if you were a large farm or if you're one of these organized cooperatives, you had a couple different options. So it was easier for buyers to identify your farms. It was easier to get certified or do things like that. But there wasn't really an option for farmers that were not organized, and particularly in places like East Africa, parts of Asia, parts of Latin America. 
most farmers existed outside of these formal supply chains. Hmm. And so there wasn't really a solution that could work there. And if you look at where sustainability needs tend to be the most pressing, so it could be things like poverty, price transparency, labor practices, it tended to be in this segment as well. So a lot of attention was being paid to a part that all things considered was faring much better than the large producer base that had been neglected. Um, so that's where we decided to focus. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And the certifications for like sustainability, those would be what, like Rainforest Alliance, Fair Trade, you're saying organic? Yep, um, exactly. And they're good for the farmers or producers because it allows them to get higher prices? The basic model for a certification is that you have a set of standards that cover usually social, environmental economic issues. Mm -hmm. And then the expectation is that you have met those standards. So you will hire an auditor to come and confirm that this is the case. If that is done, you pass the audit, you get a certificate, and that enables you to sell the product to buyers that want to buy a certified product. Mm -hmm. And so then there's typically some kind of a premium. In most cases, it's set by the market. In some cases, like with fair trade or organic, there may be a minimum premium that is expected. And so that then creates a financial incentive for you having gone through this process and huh. made whatever changes you did to your practices. Two things there. So it automatically gives these more connected producers another avenue of selling their product, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of links them into that. And then it's also, though, is slightly more expensive to get these certifications, correct? Right. Okay. Exactly. That was the tricky thing is that for larger farmers, for the organized ones, they would be able to foot this upfront cost and get certified. In many cases, it made sense for them to do that. They'd receive a premium and they'd continue. The reality was that the majority of farmers did not have access to this. And it becomes quite expensive to do this when you have smaller farms, when you're in less productive areas, et cetera. What we saw was that as you tried to expand and get additional farmers into this type of system, the cost would actually increase because mm -hmm. these were the harder to reach farmers. And so what we saw was that certification had worked quite well for, say, 5 to 10% of the world's farmers but didn't really have a pathway for reaching the others. There's a couple other challenges that we saw with, with certification, mm -hmm. but that was probably the main one is that it hadn't really scaled to reach the majority of farmers that were out there, and particularly the ones that tended to have bigger sustainability challenges. Huh. And what the expense came from those farmers, one, maybe had more work to do to meet some of these certifications, and then two, it's just they were harder to get to. So I guess where's the cost come from those certifications? The way that it works is that you have basically some kind of a fixed cost of paying for the audit, mm -hmm. of putting the documentation in place, getting everything ready, and then you're trying to cover that cost across all of the pounds of coffee that you sell. Mm -hmm. If the cost is relatively fixed and you have a large quantity of coffee, then it becomes a pretty small number of cents per pound. Mm -hmm. But if you're producing only a small amount of coffee, or if you can't really guarantee that you're going to be able to get that same quantity each year, then the cost and the uncertainty becomes much higher on a cents per pound basis. Yeah. I guess when I was kind of prepping for this and now more as you talk, I didn't realize that a lot of those sustainability and certifications reach such a small portion of the industry. And are, is that small portion mostly specialty? And there's still a large gap between smallholder farms that could be considered specialty but don't have those certifications? Yeah. So I think that 
if you were to look at it, you probably have some producers which are selling higher value coffees and there's a demand for like Rainforest Alliance or Fair Trade certified coffees in those markets. What you tend to see is that the ultra high end roasters don't really need the certification. They're able to source directly from the farmer and mm. they have their own narrative, which mm. is not the certifications one. You know, direct trade is an example of that. Most of what the third wave roasters are doing has been, I would say, outside of certifications. And then you also have larger commercial roasters that are also looking for some percent of their coffee to be sustainable and to be certified or verified. So I'd say you have a mix of different options out there. But I would say that in many parts of the world, you have farmers that have excellent potential to produce high quality coffee Mm -hmm. that are well outside of the certification system. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you're working with the majority of farmers, really. Yeah, so we're going after the places that have been hardest to reach. So the first country we worked in was Uganda, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, Uganda has nearly 2 million farmers. Basically, one out of every six farmers in the world um, is a Ugandan farmer. So it's got a huge farmer population. Farmers in Uganda tend to grow coffee alongside a bunch of other crops. It's oftentimes not their primary crop. And so they will be viewing their farmers' portfolio, and coffee is just one of the many things in that portfolio. (laughs) For that reason, there's been much less work to get coffee farmers organized because they don't think of themselves as coffee farmers necessarily. They think of themselves as farmers and coffee is just one of the things that they happen to grow. There's also a range of different qualities that exist in Uganda. So you have high quality Arabicas, you have lower quality Arabicas, you have high quality Robustas and low quality Robustas. You have the whole kind of range of of qualities that exist. So we basically said if we can make this work in Uganda, that's a pretty good test case. And so we set up first there. After that, we started working in Central America. So we launched in Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. After that, Sumatra was the next place that we took on, another place which is quite difficult to operate in. There's about a million coffee farmers there spread out over this huge, huge, huge island. They also have Arabica, Robusta there, a real mix of production practices. So that was a a very interesting challenge. After that, we went on to Ethiopia, a place that I know quite well, but is also quite difficult to operate in. And then in the past six months or so, we've also begun work in Colombia. We're starting up in Brazil and a few other origins. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Did you all launch? Two years ago. Two years ago, you said that. Okay. My understanding of Inveritas is that basically able to certify people in different areas of sustainability, and through that, you can provide them feedback and maybe help them improve, but then Mm -hmm. also connect with people on the other side of the supply chain to get them sustainably sourced coffee based on your standards. Is that an easy breakdown? Yeah, it's it's difficult to explain what we do because (laughs) um, so here's my best shot at it. Uh, What we do is we do take a common set of standards. Since you look at economic issues like price transparency, productivity, access to training, environmental issues like biodiversity, water conservation, soil management, et cetera. And then we look at social issues like labor practices and operational health and safety across the chain. So farmers, primary processors, what exists at origin. We don't look at things that happen once the coffee has been delivered to Mm -hmm. the consuming countries. The way that we do it, which is quite different, is that in many parts of the world where farmers are not organized, we will use satellite imagery and we've trained machine learning models to predict where there is coffee growing. And so we'll identify areas that look like coffee. And then at random, we drop points on the map. And we have teams of people on the ground that will be given a point, And they will literally get on a motorbike or go on foot and check in at this point. Then they will start speaking to farmers. They'll make observations. They'll talk to workers. And we do this on a very large scale. So in one week, we might 
cover 120 or so farms in an area, and that's just one team doing it. We may have 10 teams working in the country simultaneously. So we can cover a very large swath in a short amount of time. The power of doing it this way is that we are able to build up a very granular understanding of the issues in a place. We can then partner with roasters that have different types of supply chains. So they might be working with a cooperative, they might be working with a large farm, they might be working with a specific mill in an area. And so we can look at their supply chain and see how that supply chain is performing through the same process. And then we can compare it to the region, we can compare it to the country. And our goal is actually be refreshing this each year. So over time, we have this really, really compelling data set to see how regions, how particular producer groups in that region are performing over time. And the thing which is also pretty revolutionary about it is it's honest, it's transparent. So we actually come back and say, things are not perfect. There are challenges. There are problems around non-transparent business practices or labor conditions that are hurting workers, or there could be illegal deforestation happening. So we actually identify those types of things. The information is kept anonymous, so farmers that may be participating in that, that information is not known. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that there are these challenges that are happening is something that we very much want to allow people to talk about, because right now it's a bit of a taboo to accept that there may be some problems in your supply chain. We believe that the first step towards actually doing something about it is acknowledging that it's there. The roasters that we've been working with that are willing to take that leap of faith have seen it transform their buying relationships, because mm -hmm. now they're able to really begin their conversation with their suppliers at a level of common understanding. They know what's been going on in the area. They know how things have been getting better in some areas and things that have created challenges. And so they're able to really have a very, very valuable discussion about the current state, but also to collaborate on things that they might want to do to address the issues that they both feel are most important. So it can change the way that both ends of the supply chain work together is really what this information yes. is doing. Exactly. For producers, this is free. So they're able to see how they perform. They have the ability to put that into context of how their peers or other farmers like them perform. So that's very valuable for mm -hmm. them. It's not just a, you pass or you fail, you're in or you're out. We recognize that every farmer has their own sustainability journey. They're going to take different paths. There can be different levels in that. This is a way for them to get a honest, data-driven assessment of where they stand with no stigma attached to poor mm -hmm. performance or missing certain things. And then for buyers, this is actually a chance for them to really, for the first time, have an honest conversation about what is going on. Because many of these issues, they're systemic issues. So it's not that this farmer is unique in having this practice. It tends to be quite common. It just may have been overlooked or not mentioned previously because there's some stigma associated with it. So by putting that out there, companies now are able to really have a common understanding of the issues that farmers face and that they experience day to day. Two things there. So for the producers, what are some of those issues that they have day to day? And then would you be able to kind of walk us through one of the conversations that your team would have on the ground with farmers? Yeah. So it really depends on the region. I would say that right now, particularly in Latin America, we work a lot in Colombia, as I mentioned, in Guatemala, Nicaragua, Costa Rica. Producers are quite concerned about prices. So prices have recently dipped below about 100 cents per pound, which for many producers is below their cost of production. What that means is that they're going to be cutting back in different ways. It could be that they are investing less in the farm. They're not using as much fertilizer. They're not taking care of the trees in the same way. They may have had plans to renovate some of the farm and those are put on hold. In other cases, they may have taken on loans and now they're not going to be able to pay them back. The economic issues are, are really pressing right now. I would say that, yes, yeah, certainly in Latin America, that is the first thing that farmers want to talk about. 
you know, help us understand the market, the prices. I would say that when we go to other regions, it tends to be different issues. In East Africa, for instance, we tend to have similar conversations around pricing, but their productivity is typically much lower. And so oftentimes farmers are asking, how do I control this pest and disease problem that I see in my trees? Or what are some ways that I might be able to increase productivity? It really varies. One of the things that I think is incredible is that we are able to have so many different conversations with farmers, and there's so much rich information and context that comes out of that. We only are able to capture a small amount of that. And again, we try to find the common themes across all of that, but there is just this incredible ability to be hearing so many different farmer voices mm-hmm. from around the world and how they're responding to a common set of questions and issues. Yeah, that's that's really neat to think yeah. about. You were talking about how you drop different points on the map and then you get their stories and better understand kind of what their situation and it really is kind of like either a big puzzle piece or kind of this mosaic of of data points that can really give you a good understanding of what's going on on the ground. Exactly. And with regards to the assessment, so you do the assessment and then is that coupled with different recommendations or best practices that you have for some of their issues? Each thing that we look at, it's accompanied by a set of best practices or a definition for what the ideal state would look like. We see our role as primarily capturing what is the current state. And then we have different partners that we want to share that information with so that they Mm -hmm. can actually influence and change behaviors. A good example of that would be exporters that are working with groups of farmers. And so what is powerful for the exporter is to come back and say, we've spoken to 120 farmers in your supply chain, and we also have information about 500 farmers that you don't work with but are similar. And here are the common themes that we see across the two. And from that, they can prioritize what they do. Typically, when you have smaller farmers, we are able to more effectively offer a set of observations for the group as opposed to on a one-on-one basis. But we also work with larger farms as well. And so in that case, they're also quite receptive to taking information and acting on it independently. But we have to draw the line between observing and being an observer and trying to change the situation directly ourselves, Hmm. because otherwise we would be unable to provide an independent assessment if we're also have skin in the game and kind of changing the result. Huh, interesting way to think about it. It seems like overall, you all really look internally to understand where you should be playing. And I forget what you said earlier in the conversation, but it really made me think that there's distinctions of where you want to interact. Yeah, I mean, our ultimate goal is really to, we see a lot of the challenges that producers face kind of come back to poverty and that being the root cause for a number of the other issues that you see. And so if there was one silver bullet, if there's one thing that we think that the industry could go after, it would be helping farmers get a decent living from coffee. Almost like an international coffee minimum wage or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to think about doing other things that might be important for consumers, like you know, not using certain chemicals or mm-hmm. treating workers better when you as the farmer and the person managing the land are struggling to feed your family and to send them through school. Sometimes the challenges are really difficult because you may just have a very small farm. You may be in a country like Burundi or Rwanda, which is so far from the port that just the cost of moving the coffee out is much higher than if you're in a country that's close to the port. Some countries certainly, or some producers are at a natural disadvantage, but at the same time, we've seen that there are certainly ways that producers' incomes can be increased, be it through higher quality, be it through better prices or better markets, and certainly through productivity in many cases. And it's really, I think, will be a good conversation for people who are buying coffee to hear because I think a lot of times 
when we go to purchase coffee, it's like, oh, this better be organic or this better be certified this way or, or whatnot. And I think we begin to forget about some of the nuances of these things. And, you know, ultimately, at least when I go buy coffee, I want it to be the best for the suppliers and producers. And so having knowledge around that to be able to do that is something that would be good to mm -hmm. think more um, in depth about some of these issues. One of the things that we believe is very powerful is that you can take something like organic, and if you're in Ethiopia, most farmers are organic by default. They have never put fertilizers or chemicals on their coffee, and that's just the way the coffee is grown in Ethiopia. Most people, if they were buying Ethiopian coffee, could reasonably expect that it's organic, even if it doesn't have a certification attached to it. You compare that with a place like Brazil, where the normal way of doing things is very different. It's high input, it's high chemical use, the focus is very much on efficiency mm. and maximizing yield. When you see organic production in that context, it's exceptional because it is so hard to manage a farm and produce coffee in the Brazilian context without chemicals. All of that is lost when you just have two products on the shelf and both of them have the same certificate or label on them. But we believe it's interesting to share the context and what makes the Brazilian coffee exceptional in that regard and the Ethiopian coffee quite normal in that regard. Hmm. Now, there's other things that I would say that if you saw that on an Ethiopian farm, you'd say, wow, that is exceptional and it might be completely normal in Brazil. But part of it is that a lot of that context and what makes something special can be lost if you haven't really looked at what is the norm in this country, what is the status quo, and does this represent what everybody else is doing, or is it something which is truly unique and, and special? Huh. So at some point, do you think we'll start to see reports from Inveritas about here's the context for this region and here's what you should know when you go and purchase? We see ourselves a bit like a Intel inside type product. So we don't think that people will recognize the Inveritas name on a bag of coffee. But what we'd like to do is be able to give the partners that we work with the information so they can tell the stories that they want. Our goal is that we can allow them to say something which is truthful and honest and have whatever they need to back that up. I would certainly expect that in some cases, people will want to highlight those unique, special attributes that could be part of its sustainability journey. In other cases, they might just want something a bit more simple, which is to say, all the coffee that we bought has been verified by a credible third party in Veritas, and we're, we're confident that certain practices are not in our supply chain. That's fine as well. We really want to create this platform that allow companies and producers to figure out what is the message they want to tell, as opposed to give them a single message and say, this is the only sustainability story that can be told about this coffee. Yeah, that's really neat. And I assume that people selling their coffee understand what their customers need to in regards to some of those contexts and information. And so your example of Brazil and Ethiopia, what factors really influence some of those things? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Every country is different. The way that coffee exists pretty much in every single country, even neighboring countries, is really unique and exceptional for different reasons. A lot of it has to do with the history. In many places, coffee was introduced by colonists as a cash crop that could be grown for export purely for that reason. Across East Africa, coffee consumption domestically was very, very rare, with the exception of Ethiopia. And so you had entire marketing boards and structures that were set up purely to try and get the product out of farmers' hands and into a place where quality can be controlled so it could be exported. You see these systems that exist today, and to understand why Kenyan coffee has to be sold through cooperatives and then marketed through an exchange is in a large part because of that colonial history. In a place like 
Brazil, to use that example, you know, Brazil's always been a very, very innovative agricultural producer for coffee, for soy, for sugar, for a number of crops. And so a lot of the interesting technology that comes around processing and harvesting coffee have come out of Brazil. The Brazilian way is very mechanized. It's very technical. And that allows them to optimize what they have tried to optimize, which is production, which is keeping the cost of production low. They've been very successful at doing that. In a place like Ethiopia, yeah, the culture is very different. Like you said, it's been growing there for generations, hundreds of years. And so coffee exists in communities and in people's lives in a way which is completely unique and, and unlike anywhere else. If you visit someone, you know, you're a guest at a person's house, the first thing they will do is offer you coffee and you'll have a coffee ceremony with them and sit down. That's kind of a requirement, right? And so coffee has this incredibly rich cultural significance there. Plus, it's a source of income for people. Because of that, you have these two kind of competing needs. One, which is to always have coffee in your house because you want to drink it, because you want to give it to guests, because you want to have a little bit that you can take to market and trade it for butter or something like that. And then separately, you have coffee that you want to sell to make money because that's what's going to pay for school fees or for sugar or for other things that you want to buy. You will see there is a, a culture of producing two different types of coffee, even in a place as famous as Yerkechefe or Sidamo, where there's a very, very high premium paid for quality coffees from those areas, farmers will still keep a large share of their production at home and process it the traditional way because that's how they've always done things and because that's really important. You would never see that in other countries that didn't have that kind of history, but because that is the way things are done in Ethiopia, it's not going to change. Oh, wow. I need to get to Ethiopia. Absolutely. <laughs> have, uh, you kind of had a grin on your face when you were talking about that. Have you experienced walking into a house and then walking through the ceremony with somebody? Yeah, all the time. There's kind of three rounds of coffee drinking. So the first one is for satisfaction. The second cup of coffee is for conversation. It's that one you typically enjoy and drink it slowly. And then the third one is a blessing. And so every coffee ceremony has three cups of coffee that are enjoyed. They'll typically last an hour, hour and a half or so. They burn incense. They roast the coffee right in front of you. So it's a really integral part of being an Ethiopian experiencing coffee there. That's really nice. Yeah. So, and I'm headed there next week, so I'll yeah. be getting coffee ceremony nice. soon. <laughs> I'm happy to go with you if you need me. <laughs> All right. We'll check if there's room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, I don't know if it's funny to hear that, but I was talking with Commonwealth Joe's, which is a DC place right outside with the people who designed their shop. And the way they would start every design conversation meeting was grinding the beans, doing mm -hmm. the pour overs having it and then jumping into the conversation. And that way coffee can be so universal. But in other areas in the U.S., it seems like we very much kind of monetize it. And it's like, oh, I need to get my coffee quick and on the go and fast. So, I mean, I guess both are important, but it is funny to see some similarities between making an experience and creating conversation in the U.S. as well as Ethiopia. Yeah, there's something ritualistic about coffee everywhere. So yeah. just like that, I mean, it's a really nice way of easing into a conversation. Yeah. I think it serves the same purpose in Ethiopia. It's like, here's an activity that we can do, and there's a certain amount of process, which is repeated every time, so it becomes familiar, but at the same time, each one is different and unique, and you don't know what the coffee's going to taste like. You don't know how well it'll be yeah. roasted. You don't know how overpowering the incense will be. All those things are going to change based on all sorts of factors. So yeah. it's, uh, it's what makes it special. Yeah. So I would really love to learn a little more about your methodology. You said social governance and, um, anyways, and economic. Yeah. And economic, yes. Thank you. And so, what's that look like? What components are in each? And then, yeah, do you mind just sharing a little more about the methodology and and why you chose certain things and and what makes it reputable? The standards that we look at, I would say, reflect 
the types of topics that civil society and groups like the United Nations have been working on for the last 10, 20, 30 years or so. We did not come up with a new definition of deforestation. We did not come up with a new definition mm -hmm. of child labor. We did not come up with a new definition of integrated pest management. There's a range of topics that are out there that are relevant, and we simply tried to break them into their constituent parts. So if you take an issue like deforestation, there's a couple things that you'd want to know. And first off, it's probably a pretty rare occurrence for people to go into a forest and cut down a tree. And so if you're expecting that you're going to show up at the moment that that is happening, then you're probably going to be pretty unsuccessful. <laughs> so you have to look at it in a different way and say, okay, what would be the signs of this happening? And, and what will be some of the risk factors? So the first one would be, are there forests? That's one where you can look at satellite imagery and you mm -hmm. can identify types of forests. You can see, are they primary forest? Are they protected forest? Or are they trees that don't have any conservation status? That's kind of the first thing is mapping out what is the actual type of land use, which we can do. And then the second thing is to understand, well, what are the risk factors and, and how could coffee be contributing to that? So once you find areas that are close to these sensitive forest areas, the next thing you'd want to understand is, are people expanding coffee? When was the last time that they expand coffee? What was that land used for previously? In many cases, people might have been growing some other crop like corn or wheat, and then they convert to coffee. And so is that the same thing as going in and cutting down rainforest and planting coffee there? It's different. The other thing is that you also have to understand, well, what other practices in that area might be contributing to deforestation? So in many places, the primary culprit is not, say, coffee farming. It could be people going in to gather firewood. Or it could be illegal logging. By understanding the prevalence of those practices, how much of that could be contributing to deforestation, and then understanding what is happening in the coffee community. Are they expanding coffee? How are they doing so? What types of land are they using to, to grow that coffee on? You start to have a much better understanding of what to look for. We try and gather all of that context up front so that when we go in and speak to farmers and make observations, we are doing that based on the appropriate context there. Because going in and, again, expecting to see a tree being cut down or asking a person, have you illegally cut down trees in this forest in the last 10 years, you're not going to get very good information there. Yeah. So we see ourselves as having to really break down the problem and then come in with a very targeted, localized set of questions. And so we do that by having teams of locals that have a smartphone. They have surveys which are customized based on where they're working, and they will go out and ask a series of questions, make observations, and then they'll come back in at night. It all gets uploaded and synced to our database we run a lot of analytics on it, and then that evening, they will sit down and go through what happened that day. And so if there's any mistakes, um, if they've added a few extra zeros or spelled something wrong, that will be picked up. If there are things that don't make sense or seem really rare, they'll discuss that. And then at the same time, we're really just trying to understand what's happening. What do people see? We learn from these many experiences they had that day. So that's what it looks like on any given day, and then that process is repeated many times over. So a huh. experienced enumerator working for us may do 200 or 300 farm observations in a harvest. So they get a huge amount of experience. Wow. Can this whole Inveritas model be adapted and applied to other areas of agriculture? And would it be beneficial? Yeah, certainly we see opportunities in other tropical crops, things like cocoa, cotton, crops that tend to have similar characteristics as coffee and that they are like a tree crop or they're there um, and you have some kind of a processing stage, which is happening downstream. So yes, we certainly think that you could do this in other crops. Right now, we've only worked in coffee. We're looking at a couple other opportunities, but personally, I only know coffee. It's yeah. what keeps me 
most excited. It's the crop that I know best. And so I think we will, but I see plenty to do in the coffee sector. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's really interesting, but it just seems like with, I guess you could consider this big data, right? With big data being applied everywhere for the good and more impact, that it could be pretty neat. So within the methodology, to jump back to that, Mm -hmm. what made you choose the specific standards in each category? We really tried to just catalog ones that others were looking at and saying, what are the common themes here? There was a few that we thought were missing, particularly on the economic side. So most other sustainability schemes or standards don't look at poverty specifically. So you can be certified if you don't use banned pesticides, but if you are poor and living in extreme poverty, that doesn't enter the equation. So those are some things that we took issue with and felt that in order to make it more balanced and really reflect not only what, say, you know, a consumer in New York or D.C. or London might be expecting, but also what a farmer who's growing the coffee might expect as well, we tried to balance that out. In general, I would say that we we tried to draw on what other people had done in that space to come up with the right standards and the right definitions. And where we really see ourselves offering something new is on the quality of the data, the integrity of it. We hold ourselves to an incredibly high standard when it comes to what we will accept and what we will count as you know, something that meets our standards for acceptance. We're very happy to throw out things if it means that we can learn from it and make it better the next time. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing more about that. And a theme that you've talked about a little bit is the technology throughout. How do you think technology is going to continue to develop within the coffee sector? And is it going to be positive in the way that technology interacts with everything? Yeah, there's a famous quote that I think about a lot, which is that technology is neither good nor bad, but it's not neutral. And so you have to understand what could be some of the negative uses of technology in order to ensure that the good ones that you intend for are the ones that actually come to life. In this particular case, we feel that there's been a real gap in helping buyers understand the realities of coffee growing and the challenges the producers face. Mm-hmm. We feel there have been efforts to obscure those issues and say, no, everything is fine, actually. Let's focus on something else. And in our view, there are some real challenges and needs that have not been met. So we'd like to shine light on that and bring that focus back to some of these issues that have been overlooked. But at the same time, we want to make sure that this information is ultimately used to benefit producers. So when it comes to the partners that we work with, we're selective, and we want to make sure that they are coming to this with the right understanding, with the right intent, and the same vision that we have, which is to use this as a way of strengthening supply chains, strengthening relationships, and ultimately improving farmers' lives. We're also trying to share information with in-country partners that have projects or programs that are focused on improving some of these challenges. And so we want the information to be free for producers, free for other like-minded partners that are going to be doing something to change behaviors or change Mm -hmm. actions on the ground. And the only source of funding for this is to come from the roaster themselves. So we charge a flat fee on a cents per pound, regardless of the origin, regardless of the quality, to cover the cost of the verification. But then for the producers and the participants in the supply chain, they receive the information, they receive the whole service for free. Oh, that's wonderful. And you all are a nonprofit, right? Yes, exactly. And so are you receiving any grant funding or donations? We have a mix of grants, and then we have companies that are paying a fee for it. So it's a mix of the two. Any individual donations? It sounds like that's not really a priority. but We have received a few. Okay. Um, but what we're really looking to do is, is catalyze something that the coffee companies pay for. We want it to be priced at a level that allows us to cover the cost and grow and get to scale, but that represents a, a pretty modest cost on top of the raw cost of the coffee. Because our goal is not to create an expensive verification system. Mm-hmm. It's to create a very low cost 
but highly transparent one that allows producers and buyers to do many new things on top of that. So would you consider that a social enterprise? Yeah, you could say that. What do you think you're going to be able to do with all this data once you've been operating for five, ten years? There's a whole bunch of interesting applications. One that I'm quite excited about this year, one of the things that we look at when we speak to farmers is the prices they're receiving. Anybody can go and figure out what the New York seed price is. You can go online and you can see that anybody has that as a benchmark price. Traders are also looking at the export differentials. So what is a Guatemala trade relative to Honduras, relative to a Costa Rican coffee? So that information is kind of out there, but it's only at the export level. What we'd like to do is be able to actually build up a rich data set of prices that farmers are receiving. Because you know the day that they quoted that price, you can actually understand how that is changing over time, how that is changing when the New York Sea is high versus low. And on top of that, we're also looking at producer sentiments as well. One of the topics that we address is along the lines of, do you expect to be growing coffee next year? Do you expect your children to be growing coffee? How happy are you as a coffee farmer? So in isolation, that information is not useful. But over time, and with 20 countries answering those questions in a consistent way, it becomes very, very interesting. I'd expect five years from now, we'd be able to contrast this period of low prices and how producers are feeling about it and the actions they're taking with hopefully a different state five years from now. And obviously, we'd like them to be feeling more confident about their future. But my guess is that right now, there's going to be a lot of farmers that are having second thoughts about what it means to be a coffee farmer and whether that's good for them. Yeah, which would drastically probably change the way that they're approaching their coffee growing and their education of the kids, which would trickle down to a whole industry, maybe having more producers or less producers or different actions within the chain. Exactly. That's really neat. Yeah, so that's one of the things that we'll be discovering, hopefully, and finding ways to share that. And then kind of to close out, so two questions. What type of partnerships is Inveritas looking for? And what can the coffee community do for Inveritas? We are partnering with... Roasters, first and foremost. We see them as the companies that we'll offer this verification service for. And then we have partnerships with everyone else in the supply chain. So at the producer level, at the exporter trade level, in some countries there's a coffee board or a um, coffee extension service that we also work with. So really across the chain, we're looking to have strong partnerships there. And then we also are looking to work with like-minded organizations that want to use this data for good, that want to be able to use information to change practices or to direct resources towards helping farmers. Very neat. And so if somebody wants to partner or get more and understand the information, where should they go? They should go to our website or they can send us an email at info at Great. Well, hopefully they do that. So if you're listening, do that if you want to partner. But otherwise, Carl, really interesting conversation. Thank you for kind of breaking this down and letting the listeners and myself know more about what it means to be a producer and some of the barriers and challenges, and then ultimately what kind of technology and good data and methodology can do for the industry. And with that, we're good unless there's something that you wanted to say that you didn't get to. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the chance to have a conversation with you. Yeah, thank you. And that's a wrap, folks. If you'd like to partner with Inveritas, check out their website at inveritas.org or email info at inveritas.org. Keep listening to Drip, share us with your friends, and let us know what types of interviews you'd like to hear by sending us a note on our website at dcdrippodcast.com or on Instagram. A big thanks to Mike Crockett, the engineer, Dubway Studios for hosting us in New York, the Broke Royals for music, Rebecca Silverstein for website and graphic design, and Wesley Stukenbroker for creative support. Thanks again for listening, and keep brewing community. Community.